And did you know that this podcast is an independent production? That's right. The Eric Norcross podcast is an indie podcast. And because of that, we depend on listeners like you to help support the show. The best way to become a supporter is to become a patron. Patreon is a membership platform that allows creators to develop a more sustainable source of financial support for their projects. My Patreon supports this podcast. If you find this podcast worthwhile, please consider becoming a patron by heading over to the Patreon link in the description. That's patreon.com slash Eric Norcross. Again, patreon.com slash Eric Norcross, and the link will be in the description. Thank you, and on with the show. All right, I have one more announcement before I go into the episode. I know these can be super annoying, but this is not a paid advertisement. This is actually about one of my projects. I made a feature film called Fractals, and guess what? It is now available for streaming. Just visit my website, ericnorcross.com. Look for the movie Fractals, and there will be a list of platforms where you can stream it. Thanks. been up to all summer oh just getting over covid and <clears throat> new medication which was uh i don't usually read the instructions on anything <laughs> so when i got the new meds he just said well take this once a week and deal with it mm. and you might have some side effects yeah is the medication for COVID? Uh, no, it's for uh, diabetes. But um, oh, okay. In the in the directions that I usually don't read, it says you will have these following symptoms for about two weeks. Um, we're at the end of four weeks, and I'm just now getting to where I can actually eat a meal. <laughs> uh, can I ask you about the COVID? My sister just got it too. She's been. Oh, it was fun. It yeah. was exciting. So. Well, like, what happened? Like, what did you start feeling? Like, can you go down the process? To me, it was just, it was just like the onset of diabetes where, you know, I had headaches and had different kind of symptoms like diarrhea and nausea. And, okay, I, I'm used to this. And then it got severe where um, I, I couldn't even get out of bed, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, I don't mind being in bed all day, but um, nothing was getting done. Um, so I didn't know whether it was the COVID or if it was the medication or what it was. But um, I just said, um, I'm going to fight through it. And uh, I was just stubborn and bullheaded enough to not follow anybody's advice and just forged ahead and... Uh, I paid the price for it by the symptoms saying, no, we're in control, not you. So, um, yeah, I'm at the end of four weeks now, and I think I've had two days of regular meals, regular walks. Um, 
back to normal. Now I just got to get back out of the corner that I wrote myself in. <clears throat> where I've, I've started like all these different projects before that happened. And now I've got to get back to the point where I was and remember, you know, what I was doing back then. But it, it was it was actually not fun. I, I would not I would not wish COVID on my worst enemy because I didn't believe it was real at first. I thought it was just, you know, every everything that they see coming in a sniffle was COVID, a broken arm was COVID. I just thought it was all made up. Uh, it's real. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I definitely can tell you, like, being in New York through this whole thing and having a lot of family members just get sick. Some have died. My, my, yeah. I could tell you it's real. And, like, my sister's been quarantined all week because she got it. And she texted me, like, yesterday. And she goes, honestly, Eric, uh, actually, I'll read, I'll read you the text because I really loved what she said to me. I, she said, I credit the mildness of my COVID case to my vaccinations, hashtag science rocks, but I credit my efficient recovery to your advice to keep my body systems moving and do not lay down and let COVID take over. So basically, like over the pandemic, I told her if she ever got it, to don't stop moving. Putter around, take your dog right. for a walk because COVID wants you to stop existing. So keep right. existing. Uh, and that seems to be like, what a lot of people who have contracted it have said is like the thing that kept me going was that I kept going. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Stubbornness. But thanks for inviting me into your, your house again. Sure. Yeah. I, I did not make you a cake. Sorry. <laughs> well, um, you don't need to make me a cake. Um, I'm trying to lay off sweets, but um, I have your books. Last ah. time we talked, I didn't have your books. <laughs> now I have your books. Uh, not all of them, of course, uh, but yeah. uh, you have, you're very prolific, as one should be. Um, I had a similar message about, ah, oh, thank you. Appalachian Phantoms. Yeah. And, hold on, let's see here. I just want to get the covers up so people can see. That one I really enjoyed writing. Solitary um, Campfire Stories, for those listening. When I moved to Alabama... Uh, I had no idea. I, I had a cousin who, when I grew up, he had a 1957 Ford Thunderbird. And I always thought, as a well-sculpted car inside, it looked really beautiful. And then he wrecked it. And he's about five years older than I am. Um, he lives in Alabama. And like the first two weeks we were here, him and his wife met us. I hadn't seen him in over 40 years and I told him growing up I always you know I wanted to have a car like he had and I wanted to have a job that he had he was a, a police officer and while we were talking he started telling me things I didn't know about my uncle Ray that he had worked in my cousin Russ worked in his father Russ his father's uh, diner I can't remember oh it was the Villa Russ he was in Maryland and Uncle Ray worked with him as a dishwasher and he started telling me stories about my Uncle Ray that I had not heard before and right after we started talking I started writing that book um, I didn't know that my Uncle Ray's first name was Clifton 
which is an unusual name. Um, but just a whole bunch of different things he told me, and instead of putting my cousin in the book, I just made it me and my, my uncle. And uh, it just, it, that was one of the two fastest books I've ever written. One was Hobart, which I wrote in six weeks. And that one, I think, took a little bit less time than six weeks. But um, it that was actually one of the most joyful times of writing because it was just a stream of consciousness, and uh, it, it just flowed. But I had a, a similar message. Like when you held up the books and you said, I got your books, I had a, a message from one of my wife's um, high school friends that she known from elementary and high school and so on. And she, out of the blue, she writes me a message and said, I just bought your books. And I said, well, which ones? And she said, all of them. But okay, uh, why? I mean, thank you, but why? And she said she's going through a uh, surgery on one of her knees, cartilage replacement. And she had five or six or seven different surgeries and came near death because of I mean, she's suing the doctors in the hospital because she almost died. Um, they did all sorts of things wrong that I probably shouldn't be talking too much about. But she said, during recovery, I can't do anything. And your wife told me you're right, so I just bought them all. <laughs> so I'm reliving all the books that I've written through talking with her and explaining to my wife, Yes, I have not met this lady in person. I didn't know who she was. So it, it's a, well, it might be another book. <laughs> yeah. I think that's great. It's, it's, um, man, I wish somebody would just go buy all my books in one fell swoop. <laughs> I, uh, I also got this, but I didn't read it because you said that it, there's something that precedes it. So I was going to hold that off one, on that. That Cloud one verse. was, um, it started with Trilogy Whitestone, which started with a short story. It turned into a book and then three books and then four books. And then I put the first three in a collection just because I wanted to. And then when my, my friend Mike Wilson had, you know, this couple of months ago, I, it, it just, it took me by surprise because we had just reconnected um, my wife and I had gone to Atlanta, Georgia for a concert, uh, Styx, Ario Speedwagon, and Loverboy. And while we're at the hotel waiting to go, I called him up. We were texting, and he said, if you ever get a chance to call me. So I called him. And we had about an hour and a half, two-hour phone call. And he said, well, I'm busy tomorrow, but next time you come up in August, we'll get together. I said, it was like two days before Father's Day. Well, we went to the concert, went back home to, to Alabama, and I get a, a, a text message that Mike died. Like, I hadn't spoke to him in decades. I just reconnected, and now he's dead. Is this a, 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 a practical joke? They said, no, he passed away on Father's Day. And... Uh, he had just recently gotten the uh, 
title to the house that his father and mother had bought, and he was living there with one of his sisters. And she said basically he, he went to sleep and didn't wake up. There was no pain, no, no struggle. He was peaceful. Um, and on the way home, I was explaining this to my wife about, um, you know, I really, I'm looking forward to seeing him in August. So when we got the phone call and I, I told his sister, you know, if, if you need anything, we're here. And she said, we're going to have a celebration of his life, you know, after uh, the estate is settled and the probate and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I said, well, we had planned to meet in August. At the time, she had planned for the celebration of life to be this, this August. And she said, who knows, maybe he'll see you. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, you know. And I said, do you know something about my health that I don't know? And she goes, no, may, you know, because of the way you write, maybe you'll have a, an encounter. Well, they never had the celebration of life, but I, I just figured I want to do something for him. So I took the last three books of that saga, put them together, put a couple little stories in it, and put a dedication to Michael in it. So, um... They still haven't had his celebration of life, but I'm. That was that was Father's Day, and I'm still trying to get used to the fact that, I mean, he had no sickness, no disease or anything. So when when COVID hit, I was like, uh oh, am I on my way to see Mike? <laughs> but yeah, I, I think you you might appreciate the writing. Um, I don't know how to rate my own writing, but I like how the arc of that story went from, like it started with me just investigating uh, family stories, and then it just it just took off from there. Let's, let's circle back to something really interesting okay. to me. So this individual says, maybe you'll see him because this person knows you write. Yeah. Can, can we unpack that implication? Do, 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 <laughs> pe do people who have long past visit you because you're writing about them? Um, I have a feeling. It, I'm not sure how serious she was or if it was a joke, but a lot of people joked to me that, you know, when you see my sister or when you see my brother or whatever, and I don't, I do not have any special gift or anything. And I just... I mean, I know I keep my mother's portrait here because I miss her. Um, I've had a couple of experiences, but I don't go out and actively search for these things to happen. But there have been times when things have happened and people have talked about, well, either they're, they're acknowledging that they happen or maybe it's an inside joke that this guy is a little bit wacky in the head. I don't know. I just I just know what I've seen, and I look forward to seeing him again because I don't think he's upset with me. I think whatever he would have to say, if he did say anything, would be nice. It would be uplifting. I'm not afraid of it, but I just I'm not going to sit on pins and needles waiting for it to happen. I just know that 
there are too many people that have had these experiences to say that it's baloney. But I'm not going to put up a shingle and say I'm a ghost hunter. Right. Well, I can tell you, like, right now I'm in the final stages of editing this book. It's um, it's a collection of poetry, creative nonfiction essays, short stories, and it's all rooted in growing up. But a lot of the pieces focus on a specific person who hurt me and my sister when we were children. Right. Um, there are actually two people who are featured. One hurt me, the other one hurt my sister. And this dude started popping up in my dreams. And he was pissed off. I'm telling you, uh, it felt, the vibe of these things didn't feel like a regular dream. It felt like, how dare you, blah, 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 blah. Like, that was the the vibe of these almost, it was almost like he wanted to, like, physically assault, but he something was keeping him from doing this. And so, what did I do? I turned it into more artwork that I then integrated into the manuscript. <laughs> and he kept coming back. And every time he came back, I would threaten him and I'd be like, every time you do this is fuel. And at one point he tried to, in, in, in this dream, he tried to gouge my eyes out. I tried to gouge his eyes out. And so that became artwork. Uh, and wow. the last time he brought in a mediator, somebody who has passed away that I actually genuinely loved, a member of my family. And I explained to this person this has to happen and he can't stop it. And because he brought you into this, now I'm going to publish his picture. And so the last edition I made out of spite is this photo of him giving my sister a side eye. Ooh, very creepy. Yeah. Um, and his picture will go down in history now. People will know what he was. <laughs> I was, because the, the artwork previously, everything was kind of veiled and respectful because, you know, people die, they can't defend themselves. But apparently, he can, he can protest. And I can ignore the protests. Don't you think that sometimes the the presence or the manifestation of these people, whether it's, you know, in your waking, walking, or if it's in your dreams, if somehow their, their essence is trying to get a message to you, or could they be trying to use you to get their message out? Because by him, by his contact with you, and you publishing his picture, hasn't he sort of used you to get more popular? Well, or notorious? The thing is, is the moment I integrated that into the final manuscript and ordered the proof copy, the dream stopped. And oh! The, the vibe stopped. And it was just like, I genuinely think that... Um, like, because cause there was something different to these dreams. Like, I do get, like, some weird dreams sometimes that don't feel like normal dreams. And right. um, 
you know, I don't know what the nature of the universe is, but I do know that something out there didn't want me doing this. Yeah. But no, you know what? No one's going to tell me what I can and can't create. Nobody could tell me to stay silent about something that shouldn't be, that we shouldn't have to be silent about. Right. This guy hurt my sister and that's all the fuel I need to, uh, to go after somebody in my writing. You hurt anybody that I love. It's I think like, you're going I'm, about it the right way, even if he was still alive. To take revenge through writing is, is mm. the most positive way to do it because you're, you're enhancing your own ability yeah. and you're practicing your art without actually hurting somebody. Yeah. Well, the That's thing the is, most peaceful is, protest. Both of these guys who are featured, um, of the two, he's the only one who seemed to have protested it. And I know this is, this, this became like a weird conversation for some of the listeners, but you know what? Deal with it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the other thing though, is like, I have people I want to write about that are alive. Like I feature people in there, but um, I have to veil them. So like, maybe I'll use the first initial of their name with an M dash, you know, yeah. that's kind of a practice that I do. Um, or there's like, there's some people though, who are public figures. Um, but I'm still going to veil their names because I consider them as long as they're alive, very dangerous people. Yeah. But I don't know if you, if you were a terrible person and hurt people and like death, doesn't warrant any more respect than you would have gotten if you were alive. The only right. reason I veil people who are alive is protection. Yeah. You know, if, if I knew I could get away with it, if I, if I lived in a, like a, a gated community, I totally use their names, but I don't live in a gated community. <laughs> well, I, I was watching a, um, a YouTube thing about F Scott Fitzgerald the other day. And I never knew this, but he had, According to the person who was doing this YouTube, she said that he had taken his wife's diary and taken excerpts out of it and used them as his own, as his own experiences. And I know sometimes I do that with people's words, like I'll tell them, you know, while we're talking, some of the things you've said I might use in my book. Do you mind? And they'll, most of the time they'll say, I don't care. Just don't put my name in it. But I won't go as far as F. Scott Fitzgerald in stealing somebody's diary. But um, have you ever thought of, like, when you talk to people using some of the things they say and, and or oh, yeah. is, is that a normal practice for writers to do, to just That's take things? Yeah, that's I do that. I mean, this whole book and and a bunch of other books, um, even my fiction books, I'm drawing from experiences. So I got this science fiction horror book um, where it's complete, like the it is a fictional novel. Like it's about magic and aliens and all that stuff. But all the scenarios are, with the exception of the 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 hyper real realistic scenarios. All of them are rooted in things that have happened. So, for example, this particular book, um, I just basically mapped out the character's trajectory based on all these different clients I've had over the years. So he's hopping from one client to another to another. And I'm literally just like, all right, let's go into the files. Who have I encountered over the years? What, what, what did we talk about? And it's word for word conversations as I remember them. 
Um, now, all the things that you've been talking about, it seems like you write in a lot of different genres. Mm-hmm. Have you? How do you get to the point where you're writing all these different things, or you you just let the words come as they as they do? So, genre to me is a loaded word. Um, I write out of necessity. So, the way the way this novel that I was talking about came to be was playing around with vulgar concepts, vulgar language, what can I get away with, that sort of thing. But as it evolves, it becomes more horrific in that the character becomes a truly horrible person. We talked about him on the last episode with you last yeah. year. Um, or I should say last season. We discussed it the same year. But um, yeah. So that's where it starts evolving into sort of a horror novel. When I introduce what I call the others, the aliens, it suddenly becomes a science fiction novel because I can't talk about them without going into quantum physics, space flight, trial, you know. When you bring in anything, you're adding a sort of subgenre to this thing. And so that's sort of why I'm writing in these genres. It's really out of necessity as the piece evolves. But uh, who knows where it'll go? Like, I have four books planned for this, so that was book one. I have three more I have to do. They'll largely stick to those two main genres now that I've seeded the, the series, but I don't know what where it'll take me. Even though I got it mapped out, it's still very open. Like, cause I'm an off-the-fly creative. Like, I just, oh, I like this idea. Let's see how this works. What got you, what started you into writing? So I've always been interested in stories. I, uh, I actually have a, a report card from the first grade. I still have it. I have government documentation that I was a writer in the first grade because my teacher, Miss Amell, uh, I loved her. She was a great teacher. Um, Westbrook School System in Westbrook, Maine. One of the, one of the earliest teachers I remember genuinely loving. Uh, she wrote in my report card, Eric won't go out to play with the other kids during recess. He just stays in and makes books. Like, <laughs> I, so I guess I was writing like with my limited ability. I was yeah. making books out of construction paper and making stories out of them. Right. And so I'm like, that's official documentation that I've at least been a writer since the first grade. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I loved this like, eventually we moved out to the to the island which was had a two it was off the coast of maine it had like a two-room schoolhouse and i loved going down to our basement library um and just hanging out uh especially in like the science section they had all these dk science books where you could just like learn about every subject i wasn't I wasn't that into YA literature or middle grade literature or anything that I should have been reading. I was into either science or those really alluring but big Stephen King novels across the way in the section I'm not supposed to be in. That's what I (laughs) wanted to read. And so I became friends with all the librarians. And as I grew grew up, you know, we got internet installed there. It was very slow. Um, And the librarians would let me come in after hours and use it. It was fun. Yeah. So it just seems like you, you always had a curious mind. Yeah. Well, I, the thing is, is like, 
I always wanted to be that 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 kid that was out there playing with friends, but the thing is, is I grew up in a town that was very, very judgmental towards anybody who was even slightly different. Like if you weren't a product of that specific environment, uh, you stood out and, and you weren't invited to birthday parties or you might not be invited to play. Um, so I was really the, one of the, one of the kids that never got invited to come out and play on a Saturday. And when you grow up being left out of a lot of things, uh, it's very easy to understand why somebody might gravitate towards literature or to film, which I also gravitate towards film or anything that makes you feel a little less alone. Yeah. And let me tell you, growing up on an Island in the Gulf of Maine, there's a lot of time to read, a lot of time to watch movies. Yeah. And uh, it's a very, very boring place. So. <laughs> so when you went back for a vacation, was it still boring or not? Yes. Well, so when I go back now, I don't go to the island unless it's a day trip. So I, would, I did go back at the end of August this year, and I stayed through early September. I stayed with my sister in Gorham, which is uh, it's an inland farming town. Right. Um, and I would day park in Portland, take the ferry out. And the only reason I went out on this trip is they were the historical society there was showing one of my movies on the 20th anniversary of our oh. initial premiere. And because it was a community made film, uh, it was kind of a big event because like 20 years ago, the town and me, we all made this movie together. And then over the pandemic, I restored it. And this is going to be by the time your episode airs, I will have released two podcasts about it because okay. um, they're already in the can. But um, the Historical Society basically did the screening. I did an intro. Uh, my producing partner from 20 years ago gave the Q&A, which I really appreciated. Wow. Uh, and uh, I left right after the screening. I left on the last ferry I could to get back to the man. I'm like, I cannot spend the night here. This place, was, I'm haunted by this place. And uh, so I showed up in the afternoon, stayed for the screening, left that evening. Um, and that was, prior to that, the only other time I was on the island was in the middle of the pandemic. I, I, I actually took the ferry out there for 45 minutes. I spent 45 minutes on the island to get footage for a YouTube video. And then as soon as the ferry came back, because uh, what, it, what it does is the ferry will go to all these different islands, circle around, come back. And when it comes back, that's how you get back to the mainland. Right. So I, as it's going down, I get off, take my footage. As it comes back, I get on and I'm back to the mainland. So no one even knew I was there. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. But I, you know what? It's one of those things where like, I love the idea of the island. I love the idea of being up there, but it, it still feels very like I am out of place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause there's a mode of operation going on there. It's I'm sure you've heard the term Island time for Hawaiians yeah. who just kind of yeah. going to going to the office in their Hawaii shirts and just it's 11 already. I just arrived, you know, uh, they, they, ha they very much get kind of an island time and, and I'm still very much in a mode of productivity. Got to get things done. Life is short. You only live once sleep when I'm dead. Like that's my vibe. And it doesn't, doesn't go along with a lot of the people who are living there. Yeah. So. 
I don't know. I, I like the idea of going somewhere and not having anything to do, but that lasts for a few hours and then it's like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. I'm done. Yeah. That's why I never, like I went on vacation once as an adult, I went yeah. to Germany for a couple of weeks and literally after the first day I was ready to get back to work yet. I still had a week and six days left to go. Wow. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I know uh, vacations are hard. Can't I think as you get older, that might possibly change. Um, I, I, I think I'm a little bit older than you are because I was born in 1957. Oh yeah, you are. So yeah, just a little bit older. Teenage. And I think right about 45, 45 or 50. I was like, okay, I'm ready to kick back and not do anything forever. Right. Well, the thing is, is like, well, I don't have like, I mean, some part of me wish I did, but I don't have a nine to five. Yeah. And I never really did because when I moved to New York, nobody would take me. No company wanted to give me a shot. So I've always just kind of freelance. I worked when I needed to. Right. So, so much of my energy as an adult has been spent creating media of my own, making my own films, writing my own books, the podcast, right. obviously. Um, and so I'm not as tired as people would be by the age of 40. I'm 41 now. By yeah. this point, people are exhausted. Like my friend, my producing partner from 20 years ago, who is, he's many years younger than me. Uh, and he's been working retail this whole time and they work him to death and he's got all these aches and pains in his joints and yeah. I, he shouldn't like at 35 years old or whatever, he shouldn't have those yet. He does. And it's really just because he worked him. They've worked himself to death on pennies, just p retail pennies. Yeah. And, uh, well, you're using him as a machine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, some part of me would love to have wound up in some company here in New York and making f six figures guaranteed a year. But yeah. and maybe then I would feel like retiring or just going off to somewhere and rest. But because I never really were offered those opportunities, um, I'm just not tired yet. Yeah. yeah. Well, because of your lifestyle so far, maybe you'll, you'll be in this same position in 20 years from now and still not having those aches and pains. I'm hoping so. Um, <laughs> I mean, who knows what will happen, but, um, as long, I mean, I, I've always said I'd live to create. And as long as I'm breathing, I'd like to keep trying. Yeah. I mean, even on my sick days when I'm really sick, I might not be writing anything down cause I can't move, but you bet your butt. I'm thinking about the next project. Yeah. There's always speech to text. There is, and I use it every day. I use it while driving. Got yeah. the side eye from a cop this morning when I ran out to get bagels. Like, <laughs> why are you holding your phone? You know, like, just, it is what it is, man. I'm always, wow. always working. Wow. Yeah. I'm a content creator, not just as a career, but as a lifestyle. I like that, that title, content creator. Yeah. Those are the jobs I apply to. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Well, I'm interested in finding out after you do read some of those books, your, your input, because uh, 
I've not really gotten a big following, but the people that do read them, I don't know whether they're being kind or, um, I don't know what the word for it is, but they're just trying to make me feel good. But I like what I wrote, but I don't know how to compare it to other people. And I haven't read much because I'm right on the edge of getting, I have, this eye is gone. Um, I'm supposed to get cataract surgery. I, I was told I can drive, but not at night. Um, the, it's sort of funny in a way. I went to the eye doctor and uh, he said, read the chart. And I read the chart. Now cover this eye. And I read the chart. I covered this eye. And I said, okay, what, what's the gag? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, there's nothing up there. And he said, yes, there is. He said, open both eyes. And I see all the letters. I close my right eye. I mean, my left eye and my right eye saw a blank screen. Like, now I'm scared. And he said, yeah, it's the some part, uh, cornea or whatever in your eye is not focused or something. Um, he explained it all in long, detailed words. I don't remember, but basically, yeah, you're blind in your right eye. Like, okay. And he said, it's only temporary. It'll last a minute or two, and then it'll be back, and then it'll go away, and then... So he said, it's basically, he said, basically, we need to, you know, do surgery on the eye. And I always felt odd about somebody touching my eye. So he had to explain to me, you will be in la-la land. We will give you drugs. You will be out. It'll take a couple of minutes. It'll be over. And you'll be swimming in outer space for a couple hours. So you need somebody to drive you home. But he said after that, he said, it's very possible, very possible. You won't need glasses anymore. So, okay, do it now. Do it now. <laughs> I'm tired of these things. And he said, yeah, he said, most of the people nowadays, because the surgery is, you know, almost perfected, a lot of people go in, get the cataract surgery done, and then they have basically 20-20 vision. So... He said, we'll do this eye, and then later on, if we need to, we'll do that eye, and you'll be almost like a young man, at least for your eyes. <laughs> but, um, yeah, since I can't see with this eye now, I can see well enough to type, but when I start reading the book, it's like the letters are just moving all over the place. So I've got this whole island of books that people have sent me and, and books I've bought. And they're, they're like, here we are when your eyes are better, come visit us. Yeah. Well, going, going back to, you want feedback from me. Oh yeah. The problem is if I give feedback, I'm going to give it as a writing tutor. So you'd have to be prepared for that. So you have to decide <laughs> whether you really want it. Uh, that's why I, I like, don't, I have a I like strict, brutal honesty. Okay, because I have a policy against doing reviews for this reason. Um, yeah. I used to be a writing tutor, and so that's how I will always review literature. I hope that's sort of like an English tutor. Yeah, or a grammar yeah. teacher. Well, I used to teach um, essay writing and efficiency in writing, yeah. and so that's probably what I'll do. Yeah. So, Stu, I'll, on it I'll have my band aids ready. Okay. Cool. <laughs> um. But yeah, I, I see on Twitter all the time, people are like, 
it, you should always leave a review. And I'm like, believe me, you don't want me to leave a review because <laughs> I'll be that guy that you hate. Why did you even bother leaving a review? You know, like, cause you see those too. You'll see writers who like, why even leave this review? Like I'm yeah. the guy who will leave that review. So don't ask me for a review unless you really, really, really need it or want it. Cause I'm all about like having that conversation about what is being done here? What else can be done here? Yeah. And where can we go with it? Like I, I, I'm into the craft. I'm into the finding different ways of saying the same thing. And, uh, I find that a lot of writers can't stand hearing that in their reviews, like that vibe, that education vibe. Uh. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my fair warning. That's the kind of thing that spurs me on is like I look at something and I go, well, I could have done this. I could have done that. And that's what's kept me going because I reread some of the stuff I've done and I go, I should have done this and I should have done that. And then I'll write that down. Okay, I'll do that. Hmm. So instead of going back and re-editing the book and changing it to the way it should have been, I'll just write another one. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I struggle with that as well, uh, and I actually integrated that into sort of my editorial process where I will put a book down for a couple of months and clear myself of it, and then for the final reread, I'll go back through and I'll find all the things where, oh, I could have done this and this. Well, it's not done yet, so now I'll do it. Do you um, ever find that you're too critical of your own self? Like, yeah, have you ever not is. published something because of that? Um, well, no. <laughs> I, I maybe I should be more critical in that regard, but um, no. I, I mean, I feel like I am very critical in the moment. But once something's done, it's done, and yeah. I know I know the work I put into it. I know what my intentions were with it. So um, I usually sleep pretty well at night with yeah. everything I've declared finished. Um, there's always the next thing, and I can also just pull it off of the market at any point if I decide that, you know what, I've changed my mind about having this out, out there. Um, case in point, the first the first novel I ever wrote and the third one I ever wrote aren't available. Actually, the third and fourth one aren't available. Um, and this is because it's not part of my voice right now. So now they become collector's editions. <laughs> Which you won't find them though, because I I managed to acquire most of them. I reacquire wow. them. Uh, that I mean shows you how little they actually sold. But um, <laughs> at some point, I mean, I like the stories. I just don't like how I told those stories, and so yeah. I'm sure I'm not going to rewrite them. But um, you know, I think some of them too. They were written because I, w I wasn't able to make them into films. And I don't think that's the right way to go about making a novel. Oh, um, you have a visitor. Oh, that's Kitty. <laughs> Hi, Kitty. Um, I feel like if I'm writing a novel because I couldn't make it into a film for some reason or another, that uh, it's not going to work out because a lot of these stories would be better off as films. And so I'm like, well, if I'm going to put a lot of effort into rewriting something, it would make more sense to put more effort into making it into the medium that it's supposed to be. And so yes. novels three and four would be better off as either films or TV shows. Okay. <laughs>
See, I can't trust mine in my study because if they come in here, they're going to tear everything apart. Mm. The thing is, is if we don't let them in or out wherever they want to be, they'll just make noise through the whole podcast. Yeah. So Jan's been letting them in and out during this whole conversation. Yeah. So. Yeah, I usually schedule, like, whenever we're going to have a podcast or if I have a meeting, I make sure I tell my wife ahead of time, this whole day is out. You got to go to work. You got to leave me alone. Go shopping. Do something. Because eventually, if she's here, she will either want to talk to me or something. I just I just know, not that she intends to, but... I'm trying to avoid any kind of possible interruptions. Yeah. The no, cats I, I are the worst. Because if is, I get all six of them in here at one time, I'll never be able to get a word in edgewise. They'll have one by the mic and one on the keyboard tapping the keys. <laughs> yeah. They, uh, they're, they become staples of the show, though. <laughs> I'm surprised she came because she usually isn't the one i have this cat spike who's a tuxedo and he's usually the camera whore so right (laughs) but uh, you definitely stay busy i try and i'm doing a lot of things too where There, part of me wants to learn things that I never had the opportunity to learn before. Another part of me always wants to have a side hustle available for right. some reason or another. And so one of the things I've been doing recently, I've been engaged in the process of learning how to build a guitar, an right. electric guitar. I saw those pictures. Yeah. And it, it really started with, I want an electric guitar. I specifically want one like the one I had when I was a teenager. It was this Yamaha black and white Strat copy, um, very cheap, but I didn't want to buy a guitar because I know like if I just buy it, I'm going to want to sell it. (laughs) It's just part of like me, like if I have something that I bought, it's usually buying it as an investment. And so like all the guitars I previously owned ended up being sold during hard times. So I'm like, what can I do to have this thing that I want? but not be inclined to sell it if things get tough. So I thought, well, why don't I build one? So what I did was I went to eBay and I found a very similar Yamaha guitar on eBay. It was $20. The shipping was actually more than the guitar. Um, And so I, I ordered that and I got that in the next day. And I just played it a couple times and then I ripped it apart. I took all the electronics out, cut the strings off, took the machine heads off, then I stripped the paint. I stripped the satin finish off the neck. Yeah. Um, and at which point I learned that the neck had a slight split at the top. I'm like, oh, that's not good. So I ended up ordering another neck from eBay. Same model, but intact. It wasn't split. And I've been learning how to build up all the machinery in the fretboard. Because you have to install the pickups in the fretboard, then you got to wire it to the knobs, and then you got to, you know, how to solder. I've never soldered before. <laughs> like, I'm learning how to do that. And this is like all 1940s technology. So it's like, how do you not know how to do that? But I never learned. 
And yeah. so this is a big learning opportunity, not only in how to do basic electronics, but also how to use spray paint and with clean finishes, or if I want it a little messier, um, how, how can I do it so that it's kind of artistically relevant? Um, the pictures you put on Twitter of the body so far look really great. Oh, thank you. I yeah. like the, the bat symbol at the top. <laughs> yeah, so I was at the movie theater to see the Clerks 3, and they had a vending machine. For 50 cents, you can get a DC Comics tattoo, like a temporary one. Right. And so I had a bunch of quarters, so I'm like, I'll see how many I can get, because this one here would look be good. Hopefully, they'll give me this one. And they gave me three bat symbols, and so... They gave me the one I wanted, which went onto the machine, um, the machine head, the um, the head, and then two more went onto the body, and it, it worked perfectly because the spray paint job I did it kind of drippy and runny, yeah. And the tattoos are are done as a spray paint style that drip and run, right. And so it it just aesthetically really worked. It, it they go great with the glitter that I chose. Wow. <laughs> so. To, this morning we ordered the clear coat. It's got some clear coat on it now, but um, it's just not enough. So we ordered a different clear coat. When and basically my goal is to just encase it in sort of so much clear coat that it's like encased in glass. Right. And right. <laughs> uh, we'll see. Hopefully two cans will be enough to finish it off because I really want to play this guitar. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's I mean, it'll be awesome when it's done. Yeah. And it'll be mine. It'll be my design, my artwork, and I'll have learned how to wire it, how to solder, how to paint, how to clear coat. I never even knew the term clear coat before this project, <laughs> um, as I'm not that kind of person. I don't do like woodwork, um, and I'm already thinking about like the next one. I'm like, what would I do next if I wanted to really take what I've learned and do it better? You know, build an amplifier. <sighs> that is a great idea. <laughs> That is a great idea. Do the uh, copy the one that uh, the guy from Motorhead, Lemmy, has called the uh, Murder One? Because I, I saw a video one. yesterday on Lemmy testing out a signature Murder One amp, and I don't know what was in it, but the way it sounded and the way it looked was really awesome. But it, that would be something to try. Build an amplifier and put all your custom stuff in it. Yeah. Oh, I like that idea. I probably won't do it right away, but that is definitely in the books if I ever... Like, one of the struggles I had on this project was I don't have the space or the shop or the tools. Right. So, like, it's weird, too, because, like, I would be doing something. For example, well, I have, I'm going to show you the pick card. So I'm putting together this pick card, right? Right. It's fits a Yamaha and I'm I have to put these dial knobs through these holes, but the holes are too small. And so immediately I'm like, I wish this particular tool existed where and, and I kinda drew it. I could without having to use a drill, I could manually widen those holes if this particular tool existed. And just based on my needs I felt like I invented a tool, but it turns out that it exists and it's very common in guitar repair shops. So oh. I envisioned a tool that would be perfect for repairing a guitar and it already exists, 
primarily in guitar shops. And I'm like, I know <laughs> I'm on the right track because I'm thinking yeah. of things that I didn't know exist and I'm imagining them as they are because I'm on the right track with this thing. And, and that it's those kinds of signs where like, I know like, yeah, it would have been cheaper for me to just buy a guitar at this point because all this stuff is like, get, yeah, gets out of control. You, you wouldn't have been able to appreciate it as much. Exactly. And, and I just love that. I, in my head, I invented a tool that I didn't know existed yeah. based on my need yeah. only to find out that it actually does exist yeah. with these guitar luthiers. I think I'm pronouncing it right. Um, <laughs> and it's just like, Oh, maybe, maybe this is something that I, that I could be doing more of. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I love about it. I just love that I'm discovering things. I'm, and who knows what it'll inspire me to do next. Hmm. And I won't sell the guitar, like, because it'd be my first build. <laughs> like, why would I want to sell my first build? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But it's just like anything else. If you work hard enough for it, you're going to appreciate it more. Like, when I was growing up, my dad says, well, I could give you a car, but I think you need to work for it. Hmm. So it's the same sort of sort of idea that you're working towards building something and you're going to appreciate it a lot more even if it's cheaper to buy it. Yeah. You wouldn't have appreciated it as much. And that like that's yeah. something that you produced. I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. I could imagine too like especially like if you I don't know if you'd had a dad who was a mechanic or had access to a mechanic shop but if I was a mechanic, I would want to teach my child how to build up their own vehicle. Right. Like you should like, it's, it's shocking to me that we, we subject ourselves to driving around in these machines, but we don't know anything about them. Like I can never remember where to put the oil. So I'm not even <laughs> the one who does the oil. And like it, I feel like to a certain extent it would be so much better if we all, we're forced to build our own vehicles at some point or another. So we know what's going into them and when they should be maintenanced. Well, I understand a tiny bit about cars because I, back when I had a 1977 Toyota, I used to take the carburetor out. I'd clean it. I'd repair it, whatever it needed. I'd fix it. Now it's all computers. So even though I know what makes the car run, I can't fix it. It's all computer chips everywhere. Yeah, and the problem with the whole computer-based ecosystem here is in order to do anything that requires access to the software, you have to license software. So, for example, if I want to do something, if I, if I even want to like upgrade the software in my Toyota, I have to license software from Toyota to be able to do that myself. Right. It makes no sense. Unless, of course, your only sensibility is profit, then I guess it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah as I remember, like I had this, uh, I had this mechanic out here in New York um, when I had a when I had a VW, and he could never do certain things with the VW because he didn't want to pay the obscene licensing fee for the software. Wow. Yeah. He's like, I can do an oil change and I can rotate the, the wheels. That's about it. Anything else, I would need a license of software and we're not doing that because it's, I don't remember what it was, but it was obscene. Yeah. 
Wow. Yeah. But it looks like when I'm looking at behind you at the books on the shelf, it looks like different projects that you have lined up on yeah, so on the yeah. binders. Right here? Yeah. Alright, so yeah, you're right. These are all different projects lined up. So this is my Bukowski shelf. Wow. And I put Bukowski with Celine since Celine influenced Bukowski. And Bukowski is my number one influence, so I keep them close. And then, yeah, this is all either archived projects or work-in-progress projects. So these two binders here, they go to my monster movie, the one that I've been developing. Uh, this is the a proof copy of this book I was just talking to you about. Yeah. And then over here, these are basically all film projects that either were made or abandoned <laughs> or just <laughs> just on pause like and like youtube video scripts things like that and then down the road over there i got like screenplays now when you say abandoned are you saying for all time or just temporarily uh if i was given the resources to make any one of these tomorrow i totally would okay. the problem is resources and um how you know i i'm kind of checked out of this idea that of struggling to make something um just because i have it written and ready to go like if i'm going to struggle to make something again it has to be a learning opportunity so for example it's the same philosophy of the guitar right i'm making this monster movie because i don't know how to make a monster movie i want to learn how to make a monster movie whereas a lot of these other scripts i know how to produce them but I don't want to put effort into doing it unless we can do it efficiently and effectively and quickly. And the only way you can do that is with money. And uh, I'd rather, if I'm going to do that indie thing where we're scrapping together all these re different resources and different formats to put this thing together, yeah. I'm, I want to go to school. You know, <laughs> I, I, I want to come out with something. So I'm, I'm engineering the monster. I'm figuring out you know I'm, I'm studying philosophically what does a monster mean to all of us <laughs> huh. um like when i make a monster movie i really go into what a monster is and um whereas a lot of these projects th these are more industry friendly projects so it doesn't make sense for me to do them huh. yeah i have this one i think it's a beautiful one it's about grief and this guy who's grieving is befriends some paranormal entity and the paranormal entity is damaged as well. And so the guy is helping this thing and this thing is helping him cope. And it's a very lovely story and it would do very well on the market, but I can't make it by myself. Hmm. So it's a tough one to make. So know, we need to get you in touch with somebody with very deep pockets. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, a lot of the people with very deep pockets are also the ones who are very inaccessible. Yeah, yeah. Because I've I've met I've met over the years just many millionaires, and I think I've met a few billionaires, guaranteed. Um, but you know, how many people they got clamoring? You know, 
They got people knocking on their doors all the time. Right, right. Yeah. I don't want to be one of those guys. Yeah. Um, you know, I. that's why I take the learning approach. I'm like, well, if somebody wants to hear more from me, maybe they'll come and most yeah, likely they, they don't have some kind of a program like, like the voice and, uh, American idol for movie writers. Well, the, so I, I get emails all the time from various people who are trying to put together shows like that, right? Like, Oh, we're doing the next novelist or we're doing the next big screenwriter. The problem is that kind of stuff. It, all of it's about whether you're likable on TV yourself. It has nothing to do with your writing or your story. Right. So right. it's like, I remember this one from a couple months ago. Um, they wanted to find the next great American novelist. Oh, but you have to look great on camera and know how to talk on camera and be really great at improvising conversation. I'm like, your, your great American novelist is not going to be that. I guarantee you. Because all the great writers I've met um, are pretty uh, pretty reserved personalities. And often I have to really work out the conversations from them. Uh, you know, they're not going to sit through an audition class because, you know, the, it's all about the TV show. <laughs> um, and so I'm skeptical of, that, of stuff like that. I get it with the performing arts because you have to be able to perform. So it makes sense that they would, it would work for singers and songwriters and things like that. But other mediums, not so much. Um, I, I actually, it's funny. Uh, I don't know if you remember Project Greenlight. Uh, H, was it HBO? I remember hearing about it. I don't think I ever saw it. Yeah, it was one of those cable stations I didn't have access to. <sighs> Uh, in the early 2000s, uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck produced it. And they basically would get an independent filmmakers to sort of show them the ropes of how to make a movie in Hollywood. And you would watch the show watching them make a movie. And at the end, you got to watch the movie. And these guys from Maine won it in season two. And so obviously I, would, I was interested in that because I knew these guys. They'd been in some of my films. And honestly, like, I thought their work was better when they were working independently than through the Hollywood system. The work they produced through the system wasn't nearly as interesting as the stuff they were doing on their own accord. What, was it the process that dumbed it down or what? Uh, so there's a lot of things that go into it. And they actually, um, they were very good at making it clear when the process was interfering with their creative process. So for example, they weren't, if they wanted to edit their own movie, they had to do it uncredited because the union required them to have an editor. And that requirement also required them to only credit that union editor. Oh. And with a lot of independent filmmakers, one of the first things we learn how to do is edit because editing our own movies is is what we do like and it becomes almost our first obsession when it comes to filmmaking is editing so we right. love editing and when we're envisioning our movie we're envisioning how we're going to edit it and it's much easier just to get in and do it yourself than to try and explain it to some in this case old no offense but it was an old foggy editor who just wasn't thinking on the level of uh, a 2000s 
young 20-something filmmaker. Right. You know, uh, this is a guy who, who came up with video technology as his main thing and not film. And so he's like, it would just be easier for me if I could sit here. And it's like, well, you can sit here and do it, but the union isn't going to let you take credit. He's like, I don't care about credit. I just want to be able to do it. And this is actually, this is actually a scene in the series. Um, and so they kicked out the editor and they just edited their movie themselves uncredited. Um, it's, it's, so that's one example of how just the industrial process and all the bullshit affects, affects everything. There's a lot of stuff. There's like casting stuff where the studio, like they had this idea for the cast and the studio was like, no, we don't want them. Like these, these, this person or that person would be perfect. It's like, we don't want them. Even though they've agreed to do it, they still didn't want them. You know, this is the, if I'm going to be given money, I want to be given money to make the vision that I have. Right. So, and to do things my way. So that's why we don't see that many independent films anymore. That's, that's not entirely why. So there's actually a lot more independent films today than there ever have been. But the problem is there really uh, a lot of film festivals where these films would be discovered um, aren't accepting as many of them as they used to. A lot of the movies that are winning the big awards, like the Sundances and all that, um, those are movies who are already coming onto the market with millions of dollars invested in them. Oh. So I, I've been an advocate for uh, destroying the film festival circuit completely so that indie filmmakers can rebuild it because it really isn't indie friendly. Wow. But there's, a, there's some great work out there, man. It's just it's hard to find because a lot of them aren't winning the awards or getting the press. And so you really have to be willing to sit through a lot of films that you might not be that into just to find the ones that would work for you. Yeah. I mean, who's going to do that? I, even I'm getting tired of doing that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <sighs> but... You know, I got two films on the market right now. We, I use an aggregator called Film Hub, where you just put your films up there, and then they send it to places like Amazon or Tubi TV. Um, but they don't promote it, so you have to find a way to promote it, and that's the hard part. Because even though it's available on Prime Video, it doesn't necessarily mean people are going to find it. I think that that's the same thing that happens with a lot of writing today, too. Oh, yeah. You know, you've got a lot of people out there writing books. You don't hear about them. Yeah. I mean, I have... I have books with with very unique titles where you search for the titles. It's not even on the first page unless you add my name to it. Huh. Like you have to be hyper specific to pull up the book. Whereas if you were just to type my book title, Objects and Giants, and as an ampersand, it wouldn't even be on the first page. Even if I've searched for it many times before, which I have, it still doesn't really wind up on the first page unless I add my name to it. Like that shouldn't be how the algorithm works. So what if you just type in the author's name? Then my author's page comes up, but it's all Kindle editions, which is oh. not the, 
those aren't the additions I'd prefer to sell. Hmm. Yeah. Son, I've taken everything I've ever written off of Kindle because uh, I don't understand the mechanics of how it works. But I had on my uh, book report or whatever you call it, they, it would say how many books you've sold. Yeah. And the very first book I wrote, it said you've had like 10 sales. Okay, great. Then I get about two dozen emails because in the in the first part of the book I say you know contact me through this email and about two dozen emails saying I liked your book but blah 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 and I'm like wait a minute 24 different people wrote me but only 10 people bought it how does that work and they're all from different parts of the country so they're not in the same household yeah how does that work so I haven't I figured that out yet yeah, there's some weird thing that they're just where they people are able to just get content through their Kindle for free. Yeah, and that's weird too. Like a lot of people have read my book, The Violent Diary, but I've never really received a cent for those reads. Huh? And there's some sort of I don't know. I honestly am so confused by it. Um, it's definitely like I feel like it's a class action waiting to happen. Yeah, but I'm gonna let somebody else deal with it. <laughs> the legal, yeah, if somebody legalese, does file it, I'll jump in on it. Yeah, I know there's been people saying, "Hey, this book was good. This was, I didn't like this, or I did like this." And can you explain this part to me? No. If I haven't been paid for, why should I explain it? I mean, if we're on a podcast and you ask me a question about it, I'll explain it. But just some Joe Schmo that I don't know asking about a book that I never got paid for, uh, no. Yeah. No. That's been happening, man, especially with them. I had a conversation um, not too long ago, and at the time we're recording this, it's actually the one that's out right now, where we were talking about how Amazon keeps playing with the the math, so to speak, on how they pay people out. So the the example that I gave was there was a short film I made that was streaming some years ago. I made I made a profit off it. The film cost uh, cost four hundred and fifty dollars to make. It was just a short film. I made six hundred dollars off it. That is a profit. Literally, like, the same week of that payout, they changed the math so that I never got paid out that much again. Like, oh, well, we're now oh. only giving this amount to filmmakers who aren't from mainstream studios. That way we can invest more in licensing mainstream content that our people actually, that our customers actually want to see. And I'm like, Whoa. seemed like they wanted to see this because they kept watching it all the way through. And they're like, yeah, but yeah, we don't know who you are. And, and that's kind of like what they're doing to writers, too. Uh, unfortunately, they're really the only ones who can legitimize your work right now because the top five publishers aren't going to talk to us. And there are presses like Lulu.com, but who, who, you're going to send somebody to Lulu to buy your book? They're not going to think twice to do it. Send yeah. somebody an Amazon link, and then suddenly you're legitimate because yeah. I've even seen big book 
brick and mortar bookstores looking on Amazon for information about a book. Like <laughs> if you go yeah. to the like customer service section at Barnes and Noble, they yeah. have an Amazon loaded. So, well, somebody told me about a book called uh, Twice Told Tales. Um, written by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I went to one of those brick and mortar stores. I can't remember the name of it. Um, and I said, I need to find it. And they did the same thing. They looked on Amazon. And he said, well, we can buy it brand new. Um, we don't have it here in the store. It's an old, old book. I don't know how many years ago. And he said, we'll order it for you. So I got home. About a week later, it comes in the mail. It was photocopied. Every page was photocopied. And like in the middle, there was a picture of somebody's thumb on the page that was photocopied. Oh, my God. I'm like, how, how do you do this? Like the one that I've got now is... It's still photocopied, but it, it's decent, and there's nobody's hands or in it or anything. Oh, you said but, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Yeah, it was uh, some book that was sold by Amazon. Um, a, a bookseller. It was like a subcontractor or whatever you'd call it. Yeah. But they charged twenty bucks for this book, and it was it was basically a collection of photocopied pages. You can get. A legitimate paperback for seventeen. Yeah. Well, the one that I got is paperback, and it it's a good copy. But I think I spent fourteen dollars on it because they gave me a rebate for the bad copy that I got first. Huh. But I I don't think in my life I've never seen that before, where you get a book in the mail and you open up in the middle there's somebody's thumb, you know, scanned. Oh, somebody, awesome. somebody's reviewed it. What the heck? A Xeroxed book? Every page of this book was scanned in Xerox. They yeah, look who wrote that. Oh, my God, that's you. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's the thumb. Yeah. That's very, oh, that's so messed up. Yeah. Hold on, I'm going to rate this as helpful. Yeah, that was... That's why I sent the picture to Amazon because it was like, how do you do this? Uh, huh. That was incredible. Let's see, now you've seen the pictures. <laughs> That's so crazy. I'm going to share that review. Yeah. I'll share it on Twitter when we're done. <laughs> yeah, it is some weird things happening out there, but I, I think it is odd that like you said, the brick and mortar stores go to Amazon first. They don't go to anybody else. Yeah. Uh, I've seen one go to Google, but you know, <sighs> yeah. Anyway, that's a depressing topic. <laughs> we can move on from that. Photographic evidence is always good. Yeah, oh yeah. I used to make. I made some good money just being a photographer for like this lawyer. <laughs> Like, like somebody would like be suing. Um, I think one time somebody was suing an elevator company, so the guy sent me to take photos of the elevator. 
it was working perfectly fine. There was nothing wrong with it, but I guess they just needed photos. That kind of that kind of thing. That's good money. Yeah. Lawsuits. I'm waiting for the day that somebody has photographic evidence of either Bigfoot, the Loch Ness monster, or an actual ghost sighting. Hmm. I, I would love to see that because all the photos I've seen so far, you know, with the advancement in photography, you can explain anything. Did I ever tell you about the um, the UFOs I took pictures of outside of Costco? No, you didn't. Well, I don't think you did. I'm going to turn my phone back on so I can show them to you. So They were looking for a good deal at Costco. <laughs> so I always... So Costco and Trader Joe's in Staten Island, New York are on the same boulevard. And one time I saw big orange um, ball sort of outside of Trader Joe's and um, it's rooted in this sort of I get these like attacks of anger mixed with anxiety Um, it's one of the reasons I can't listen to the news radio because every time I hear something bad I'm like "Ah, why are people so horrible Um, and the first time outside of Trader Joe's it was like that I don't remember the specifics. I know I wrote it down. But once I write something down, I don't really unpack it. And this big orange thing appeared just past Trader Joe's. And I'm like, gotcha. And then it went away. And then right before going to Maine this summer, I was listening to the radio, stupidly. Uh, and they were talking about this horse. In New York, we have these horse-drawn carriages that tourists use. I find it very abusive. Um, and one of them collapsed from dehydration and malnutrition. Right. And you had all these assholes calling in like, who cares? It's just a horse. you know. And I remember getting so visibly angry. Um, and I'm like, I started just thinking about why do I have to live in a universe of duality? Duality is so fucking stupid. Everybody should just be awesome and good. Fuck duality. Fuck evil. And I, you know, I eventually get to Costco. I go shopping. I'm coming out and there's a giant bright white orb. Not shitting you, dude. Right next to this clouds. And my, I don't know why my attention was brought specifically to this this thing because when i'm at, in the parking lot that one specifically is a nightmare it's dangerous i'm i'm focused always on the on not getting run over for some reason i stop cold and my attention is brought to this orb and i'm like okay and then i go to the right and there's a black one now we're into duality for real there's a black one and it's moving aggressively kind of coming this way and i'm like i see you at which point it blinks twice and then they both kind of go into the clouds so i'm here bitching about duality how i hate living in a universe of duality then i got a a white orb and a black orb the aggressive black orb actually acknowledges me and both of them let me get pictures so i'm going to show you the pictures 
And I'm probably going to block uh, block this on the actual show uh, because I'm not ready to release them. Um, it was actually video that I took, but I screenshotted the videos for just so I could show them to people. All right, so that's the I think that's the black one. I don't know if you can see it. Oh yeah, I'll make it bigger. Wow. That all right? So that's the yes, black I one. Do. That's the one that um, blinked at me. Again, these are video screenshots, so I do have video. That's the white one. Whoa. And, and one so, was moving towards the other. One was moving. Was it? It was. Yes and no. The white one was higher, and. It was starting to be covered by clouds as the black one started moving. And it seemed like it was moving almost kind of towards it, but below it and in a way to get my attention. Whoa. So, and I, and these aren't the only UFO pictures I've seen where like, not only have I seen them for real and taking them, but I've also been sent many that come from reliable people where I'm like, wow, this shit exists. I'm skeptical you're ever going to get what you want. And I'm going to tell you why. Because when it comes to Bigfoot, when it comes to ghosts and all this stuff, not everybody sees the same thing. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but um, in all the people I've interviewed on this topic, one of the, 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 uh, the things that always emerges is people will see different things, even with flying saucers. Somebody might see a flying saucer, and in that same instant, their friend that they're with might see just a ball of light. Yeah. Um, the same thing with Bigfoot. Somebody might see a Bigfoot. Other people might just see a shimmer. Or maybe even, I think there was one time somebody saw a predator-like cloak, like a wave. Right. Um, where somebody else saw something completely different. Um, some people see owls. That's a really constant one, owls. But like big owls, like the size of a kid, <laughs> like yeah. obviously not an owl. Um, and so it's this idea that whatever any of this is, it's just trying to appear something that makes sense to the individual and maybe doesn't look anything like supposed to. Like who knows if those orbs are supposed to be those things or whatever they are. I don't even like the word orb because it's so woo-woo, but they were circular <laughs> and moving yeah I think it's easier for people to believe in extraterrestrial beings because it's so removed and it's sort of possible whereas it's sort of been frowned on for decades or maybe even centuries that ghosts exist a lot of people think yeah it's just you're imagining things and people were People were institutionalized for such things. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is everything seems to be dialed exactly to the person that's having that encounter. Right, right. Um, that it's like, oh, this is meant for you. Only you. No one else in the parking lot is going to look up and see what you're looking at. In fact, they're not even going to notice that you're stopped and are looking up. Nobody stopped and looked up. Nobody was like, why don't you keep moving, dude? You're blocking the way. Yeah. Like, it was like suddenly I didn't exist there. 
Uh, and that seems to be a regular part of this whole phenomenon is it'll dial into you for a specific reason. Um, but who well, knows? I, I do know to underscore what you just said, when my sister and I went to the place that started my first book, my cousin Bertie's place, um, we just went there to see what the place was like. And she heard it before I did. She heard my cousin Bertie calling my name before I did. And I just, you know, I went through the house. I didn't see or hear anything. And then we got back in the car to go home and she goes, I want to play this back. She had a little electronic voice recorder and she played it back and we could hear ourselves you know, moving through the house, and then I heard it, and I was like, I know who that is, and she was, yeah, that was Cousin Bertie, and she had died, like, I don't know, 20, 25 years before, but we started looking in the photographs, and then she turned on her, uh, her little handheld video recorder, 8mm camera, and it, it wouldn't come on. And we had had it plugged into the cigarette lighter all the way down there. And the batteries were charged. But when she went to look at the camera, it wouldn't come on. We left her property and it came on. It was like those two things together, you know, it's strange. But like, like you were saying before, she heard it. The machine heard it, but I didn't. But then... The machine told us both, yes, this did happen. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think that's true. There, there's a lot of things that happen that, just like that UFO picture that you showed me, maybe you're the only person that was meant to see that. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Because they seem to pop up um, when I'm feeling a very specific way in that specific area. That place is haunted by them. Yeah, that whole artery, and uh, like I do know, my mother used to say that she could tell when her mother was visiting, because her mother died in our house in the middle of the night. She was just visiting. Um, her husband had died like a year before. Um, ever since that night, my mother would sometimes go towards the hallway towards that bedroom and start talking to her mother I'm like yeah mom's off her meds no she's not off her meds she's you know my, one of my older sisters say she's talking to her mom oh okay and i just grew up thinking well that's normal and uh to her i'm i'm guessing she actually could see her or sense her nobody else could but it was you know just meant for her I like the story that you told me last time about your mother having premonitions and you on the dock. That has stuck in my head. And I've been trying ever since to think of some time when that ha and it has never happened to me where somebody's had a premonition. And that is just, that's priceless. I told that same story recently on the Jim Harold podcast. Yeah. Where, uh, 
Yeah, these bullies wouldn't let me out of the water. I was a severe asthmatic. Yeah. I had to hold my breath for a long time to swim under the pier. Yeah. So we're talking all this wood infrastructure that goes down a substantial depth. It was high right. tide, which makes it even worse. I had to go under all this, find an air bubble, go under again, find another air bubble until I'm at the pylons, at which point I can just like I don't, use my arms to float myself to shore. I come up. My dad is there in his truck. He's like, what's going on? I'm like, these assholes from New Hampshire wouldn't let me out of the water. Summer kids uh, from wealthy families. He's like, all right, let's go get your stuff. We go down to the pier, get my stuff. He lays into them. He's like, you sons of bitches. He's an asthmatic. He could have died. I found out later that my mother was doing dishes. And... She had a vision of me drowning. Um, I don't remember how f- far away me finding out about this was, but I do know that she ran out to my dad who was working in his shed. She's like, go down to Ponce's Landing, get your son, he's drowning. He goes down, he arrives just as he sees me coming up from under the pier, soaking wet, probably shivering. I remember, I, you know, you stand the North Atlantic long enough, you're going to be shivering. Uh, even in the middle of summer, that water is cold. And um, yeah, it's crazy. And then, I mean, I don't know how far back I knew about all of her, her stuff, but uh, it became a regular thing where like, she would tell me about all of these different dreams that she had. And after I moved to New York in 03, I, my writing started veering towards the paranormal. So I'm like, this is something I feel like I should have a record of so I can build off of it. Mm. Um, it's very personal, and I'm starting more to write from a personal experience. And so I asked her to send me just send me a letter, if you, if you have time, of everything. All your dreams, all of your premonitions, um, because she does have dreams as well as just premonitions. And so she did that. And I still have that letter. And that's the letter I read on the Jim Harold podcast where she just details one after the other. Like there was this one time where, uh, I mean, not one time, it was a recurring dream that started around the age of 11. And it got and it became more frequent the further into her teen years that she, she, she got, she became. And it was just basically the dream was a young mother was going to the fridge to get medicine for a sick baby. Okay, whatever. Until she acts out the dream, going to the fridge. So she she describes it as, after we rearranged the kitchen in Westbrook, which is where we were living when I was a baby, I unknowingly acted out the dream by going to the fridge to get you some antibiotics, which is where you keep antibiotics, in the fridge. And... Um, after I acted it out, it hit me that I just acted it out, and I never had the dream again. And uh, she has stuff like that. Like she, rem- she, she says that she knew that my dad was going to be her husband. She knew when she was just a kid, and when he married his first wife, he kicked him in the shins and said, "How dare you!" But she didn't know why she was reacting that way. Like, <laughs> yeah. There's some good stuff. She's still alive and kicking, right? She is, but we don't have a relationship. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I have a, a an absolute just. I'm very strict about MAGA. Can't do it. Yeah. Can't listen to it. But um, I, I find these stories fascinating because she won't even talk about them. No. She became very uber religious after uh, in the late 90s and into today. And she became like a minister and founded her own church and all things that, that I can't get behind. Uh, <laughs> I'm very science minded. Uh, no. And um, part of her newfound religious identity is she can't acknowledge this so she i'm glad i got that letter when i did well, because she can't she, acknowledge the premonitions yeah she won't acknowledge that they exist which is this is why i'm glad that i kept that letter or that i even thought to ask for that letter yeah because i can't get that i will never be able to get that from her again wow yeah and you know what the spooky thing about that letter was so there i'm gonna I'll tell it to you in a sec I got to give you some backstory. This letter is formatted in a way where they're basically like standalone moments where sometimes they worked out, sometimes they didn't. Uh, maybe she saw a vision of a specific vehicle being pulled over only to around the corner and see that vehicle being pulled over by a cop. You know, very like stuff that she would never be able to change. Then there's stuff where like she would have a dream about my sister being hurt very severely by a lawnmower. I end up with all the lawn mowing duties because she doesn't have any dreams about me mowing lawns. You know, like it affects your chore list yeah. <laughs> as a teenager. And um, so she's attempting to change things with what she's gaining from all this. And um, at the end of the letter, she writes, so the whole letter's typed. As an afterthought, she hand wrote in her handwriting, there's one other dream that I continue to have. It, it's about your father, but I don't want to talk about it because it's so horrific that I'm afraid it's going to come true. Whoa. It scared the shit out of her enough that she won't talk about it, but she felt it was important enough to handwrite an additional part of that letter to convey it to me. Whoa. And I don't know what it could have been, but I can tell you since 2003 when this happened, when this letter was sent to me, my dad has had um, both legs amputated due to un uncontrollable infections. And um, he's now stuck in a wheelchair, no legs. Um, and I wonder if it's maybe the image of that coming up in her dream. Like, that's my, my guess. I could imagine that as a young wife dreaming your husband like that over and over again would be pretty horrifying that you wouldn't want to talk yeah. about it. But who knows? She never, ever said what the dream actually was. Wow. Yeah. That would be the good, a good cliffhanger for the end of a book. <laughs> yeah. Well, I use, wow. so I use this sort of ability in many of my characters in my sort of fiction writing, uh, especially that, that sci-fi horror series that I talked about, because it's a very real gift that people have. I've had dreams where, I mean, nothing groundbreaking, 
I'm not going to be able to predict the lottery, but I will have dreams where I'm telling Jan a specific thing in a specific location and literally the next day we'll be in that location and I'm telling her that specific thing. And I'm like, oh, I dreamt about this last night, you know, like, but it's never, it's never the lottery or it's never anything huge. Wow. I especially love like, uh, as a New Yorker, um, we're starting to see more and more um, accounts of people who were having dreams of twin towers just before nine eleven, right? Which we, you know, they hid a lot of that paranormal stuff from us in that era because it was always about the firemen and the event and the war um, and how the community came forth to help and all that, but. As we've gotten further from it, we're starting to see more paranormal stories related to 9-11, which I've become obsessed with. And there's some there's some great stuff. I don't know if did I ever tell you about the the woman, the Red Cross ghost? I don't think so. So this is a guy. um, He wrote this book about being he worked at the sifter site in Staten Island. So all of the rubble from ground zero was brought to a site in Staten Island where they'd sift through it. They called it the sifter site. And people working at this site recount seeing a black woman in a 1950s Red Cross outfit with a platter of sandwiches standing outside the site. And, you know, they go in and out. It was probably just a volunteer offering sandwiches to the workers but whenever anybody would try to get a really good glimpse of her or approach her to talk to her, she'd vanish. Huh. And he, he writes about this in his book. I've been trying to get him on the podcast because I think it's a, such a great story. Um, he, he suggests that maybe this was a, uh, a sort of spirit guide of some kind uh, for anybody who's like souls that are confused about what has happened. Or something like that. Like it's it's an interesting concept, because one of the things that everybody working these sites, especially the ones who are working at it at night, because you know after nine eleven that was a twenty four hour cleanup operation for over a year, and so for the night shifts they would see wisps of black just kind of going in and out of the rubble, and it was almost like an organic thing searching for something. Yeah, uh, and that's creepy. That's well, I know creepy. on 9-11, I was, I was not there when it happened, but I was employed by the Pentagon as a cop at the time. And I got home to see it on the news. And right after it hit the news, I got a, the last phone call I got that day was from my boss at the Pentagon. And he said, all leave is canceled, all vacation is canceled, all sick leave Days off, everything is canceled. You're now on a 12-hour shift, seven days a week, until further notice. I was like, um, okay, so when do I come to work? Is it 7 o'clock or 11 o'clock? And he said, well, you come in at 7 p.m. and you work till 7 a.m. Okay, and he said, you have to bring all your gear, including your gas mask, and when you get to work, you're going to get NBC. Uh, you know what NBC stands for nuclear biological and chemical suits so they they give you this little pack that goes on your belt and you carry this nbc suit so in case an alarm goes up you have to don the suit but 
as long as we were in the communications section, we were okay. But once you walk out of the door, you have to put the gas mask on. So anytime you go to the bathroom or go to get a snack or whatever, um, you have to wear the gas mask. When I went on break, I would go down to where the rubble was. And there was certain parts of the building you couldn't go to and certain parts you could. I was always going down there saying, I wonder if I'm going to see anything. You know, am I going to see some of these spirits and all that? Didn't see anything. But I heard noises that were not mechanical. They were not structural. Um, I knew what, you know, water pipes and electric and all that. I knew all the sounds of the building. But there were sounds down there that I can't explain. And I would come back upstairs and I'd tell my coworkers, you know what I heard down there? And they would all say, yeah, 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 you heard a ghost. And they weren't just joking. They just didn't want to hear it. And I found out before I quit, some of the guys told me the reason why we said that is because we have heard things. We'll tell you about it someday. And that day has not come yet. Yeah, there are a lot of people who are really finicky about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, especially when, that's why I say like you get these stories more the further away from 9-11 you get is because they really feel like they need to focus on the tragedy at hand mm-hmm. uh, and not that other stuff. But um, I was, I've been waiting for these stories for a long time. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, not to, you know, the tragedy, tragedy should always be remembered and all that, but yeah. uh, I'm, I'm a student of finding out reality proper. And the only way to do that is to, to mine these stories. I want to know what I people have heard. I think it's the same thing with a mass of people as it is with like individuals. Like when you saw those things that you saw, you were in an emotional state yeah. and, and increased emotional awareness. And wherever there's a lot of people with that, with an increased emotional uh, situation, there's bound to be something there. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. I mean, there's now a story of um, these these teenagers in Connecticut recall seeing a saucer over Long Island Sound from September 12th, 2001 for several weeks after that. And right. it almost just seemed like it was always positioned in the same place over the sound as if it was observing New York City from a distance. And multiple observers? Multiple teenage observers. Teenagers at the time. They're working adults now. But, yeah. They're probably in their late 30s now. But multiple people. Wow. So imagine that. This thing happens. And then a few clicks to the northeast, there's this craft that's just there. And... Everybody had the feeling like it was observing New York from a distance, but not getting too close. Right. You know? So everybody's watching the skies in New York at that time. So why would you get too close? Um, yeah. That fascinates me. Like I've said before, I think there's more to this universe than a lot of us realize. Yeah. Well, we always wind up there with these conversations, right? <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you letting me see you again. Yeah, I appreciate you coming back and having a conversation. I'm trying to keep things. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to do a thing where I bring people back, but the interviews, since we've already met, 
rather than having it be more interview based, having it more, even more conversational than it was before. Um, just because I'm trying to get into like a coffee shop vibe Yeah, and it's easier to do that with people I've had on. So yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Yeah. All right. I will see you next time. All right, man. Cheers. Yeah. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.